Before the episode, I want to acknowledge three sponsors of Think Like an Owner. The first is Live Oak Bank. Live Oak Bank is a seasoned SBA lender focused on search funds, independent sponsors, private equity firms, and individuals looking to acquire small companies. Live Oak has closed billions of dollars in SBA financing and is actively looking to help more small company investors across the country. If you are in the process of acquiring a company or thinking about starting a search, contact Live Oak Bank directly to start a conversation at liveoakbank.com slash contact us. The second is Hood & Strong LLP. Hood & Strong is a CPA firm with a long history of working with search funds and private equity firms on diligence, assurance, tax services, and more. Hood & Strong is highly skilled in working with search funds, providing quality of earnings and due diligence services during the search, along with assurance and tax services post-acquisition. They offer a unique way to approach acquisition diligence and manage costs effectively. To learn more about how Hood & Strong can help your search, acquisition, and beyond, please email one of their partners, Jerry Joe at jzhou at hoodstrong.com. The third is Traction Capital Partners, a private investment firm based in Tacoma, Washington. Traction focuses on acquiring companies in the Pacific Northwest that have between $1 and $5 million in earnings. Visit their website at tractioncp.com or reach out to one of their partners, Justin Turner, directly at jturner at tractioncp.com. And now to the episode. Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman and this is Think Like an Owner. This show seeks out conversations with business owners and private investors to learn how to acquire and run small companies with a special focus on search funds, micro-private equity, and permanent capital. You can learn more at alexbridgman.com podcast and follow me on Twitter at AEBridgman. And if you like the show, please leave a review and tell a friend to help more people find Think Like an Owner. I continue exploring search funds, and with this episode, I talk with a searcher who is in the middle of the process, and thus is experiencing its ups and downs live. My guest, Jules Brenner, runs a self-funded search called Manufacturing Succession, and as the name implies, is focused on acquiring a manufacturing company. Jules has an interesting background with engineering and startups, and talks about how that background guides his search. In addition to life as a searcher, we talk about preparing for a self-funded search, owner outreach, and searching as an engineer. If you're an investor interested in manufacturing companies, or just want to connect and learn more about Jules, go to manufacturingsuccession.com contact. I hope you enjoy the episode. I've talked with searchers who have completed their search and they acquired a company and that was all well and good, but I also wanted to hear from searchers who were in the middle of that search and the emotions and the ups and downs were still very raw and you know they lived them every day. And so I'm, I'm glad you're able to join. Do you want to start by sharing a little bit about your background, career, how you got into uh, starting a search fund? Thanks, Alex, for, for having me. Always happy to you know, get my thoughts on, on searches and, and help the search fund community. I'll give you a background about myself first. So I'm uh, originally from New York City, born and raised in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, if anyone knows it. I was at NYU. I was a mechanical aerospace and business major. I spent a lot of time in different engineering projects, different machine shop endeavors, done everything from underwater vehicles, cars, aerospace stuff, medical stuff electric vehicles and you know my LinkedIn will probably do a better job of, of showing you some of these projects but when I first went through all these companies and had all these experiences I spent a lot of time trying to learn from founders um, you know taking jobs that you know maybe normally wouldn't be so effective for like a long-term career and more instead of you know how can I learn from someone else at a different stage of their business and then how can I use that to, to impact my future so I went in and, and focused on learning through most of my career through internships and some some professional roles and so on and I kept coming to startups at different stages, just out of a seed fund, anywhere to getting to a B. 
And the thing I kept noticing is the, the founder always had to A, keep the customers happy, B, keep the investors happy, but C, try to still figure out their product market fit and keep consistently adjusting to that. So my thinking for this was, you know, I wanted to be in a situation now where I didn't have to do that. I could instead focus on how do I innovate, how do I keep customers and investors happy and so on, and, and how do I improve something that already exists and build it into something bigger. So I was just thinking about how to do this, and I was doing some research, and I stumbled upon this entrepreneurship through acquisition model, and I immediately got pretty intrigued. I actually had a friend back in uh, Brooklyn where I grew up whose father bought in a business out from the previous owner, and I think it was like a seller finance type thing, but... Um, I always kind of kept that in the back of my mind as that was interesting. You don't have to start from the from nothing. And did more research. I, I did some of the typical stuff that I'm sure searches mostly do. I read the Harvard Business Review book. I read read uh, Buy Then Build. Did my research on SearchFunder.com. Found out about that. And you know, ultimately just decided I want to take the plunge and get into this. And I want to look at this more from the perspective of you know how can I start one business, improve that, and, and build a portfolio, and then eventually have some sort of exit. And the other thing I, I really thought about when getting into this is a theme that I've still been going on in my whole career this far, and, and that's trying to focus more on the learning. So. I, I go into this thinking that, you know, if I come out of this not making a ton of money, just come out with a ton of really good experience, I think that was a, a successful search and a successful endeavor here. And, you know, hopefully I can leverage that into the future to actually have a skill where if I'm living in any state, any part of the country, doing whatever I want to do at any point, I can leverage all this experience that I learned now and find a business that exists and, and build that and, and grow that from anywhere. So I really think search funds are exciting for that reason. You know, you get, you get the skill that you can take on to the future and, and always use. What steps did you take then to actually set up the search fund? How much time did you take before launching to think about your strategy, like potential research you did? Why did you choose self-funded? You know, what was the what was your thought process going into launching the search fund? Starting out, I, I did a, sort of a realistic assessment. That's first of all the, the thing that you want to be clear of, and you know, I've had a bunch of searchers reach out to me and ask for my thoughts on this. And what I say is, when you're doing a search, you're you're not really some people are treating it as if they're almost building a startup and they're having to kind of figure out what's that awesome idea that I should pursue and so on and, and build from there. And uh, because of that, they spend way too much time on that ideation. So I fell into that trap when I started doing that as well. So I, I kind of had my, my startup hat on for too long, if you will. So kicking this off, I, I was like, what's a good industry? What's exciting now? Where can I find the most opportunity to buy a lot of businesses and so on. And I put more thought into it. I really said, well, at the end of the day, whatever I find, I'm going to need to convince someone to fund me, right? And that's going to be based primarily off whether A, it's a good deal, but B, whether they actually believe that I can pull it off. And a lot of that's going to come from my past experience. So when I kicked it off, I thought about, well, let me do an assessment on the things I've done and let me see what I can actually realistically explain to someone that I can handle. You know, as I did that, I thought machine shops and manufacturing and something that I, you know, I know really well and I know I can handle and, and I know I know I can come in and take some of the experience from sales and, and the business development that I've done in the past and apply that and, and really grow one of these operations. So kicking it off, I, I, as I thought about that, I said, okay, well, Let's call this manufacturing succession partners. Let's focus on manufacturing more broadly, but let's try to at least focus in on a few different niches so we're not just running around all over the place and, and searching for something we don't know. So starting there, I gave it kind of this general title. And from there, I said, well, based on my experience and what I've seen from past operations I visited or heard of, what industries provide me with the highest likelihood that I'll be able to find a business? Basically, what has the maximum amount of supply of businesses out there? And then also, 
what industry has some path towards an exit, right? Because I, I don't, I didn't want to come in a strategy where I'm just buying something and running it indefinitely for, you know, 20, 30 years as some search funders might want to do. I instead wanted to come together and build a portfolio. So I thought about that. And I also thought about what are going to be sort of interesting drivers to how do I select these businesses, basically. So I thought about that and I said, well, we need something that has some replacement parts. We need something where they're niche enough to have a moat where you join from day one. All the customers aren't just going to leave because there's someone with less experience come in. There's a reason they're buying from these types of companies. So I just started listing out these parameters and and I kind of got myself thinking, well, the real thing that I've been interested in for a while and the, the obviously biased due to my college degree was aerospace. So I wanted to spend a good amount of time in that industry and I did know the types of players in there and so on. And then I also wanted to focus on equipment manufacturing businesses because they had that bit of a predictability. So they tended to have longer order times. So you might get a machine a year later. So you have to sign some contracts. So there was predictability. And there's also this need for replacement parts in both aerospace and, and equipment. So you knew that there was a reason a customer had to keep buying from you. And especially if you made the machine, I mean, even if the owner changed, they're going to have to keep buying from, it's, it's at least easier to keep buying from the same person every time. So going into that, I just started sort of laying the, the, the foundation together of what this would look like from a sort of a qualitative search, you know, what that ideal candidate would look like. And from there, I, I just kind of said, well, this is enough to get started because at the end of the day, a lot of searches are coming in and building these like models and saying, oh, this industry is exciting for this, that, and so on. And that's all good. But as soon as you start actually going through the search and starting to limit your parameters on what you're willing to do, whether that be the deal size, whether that be the deal location, whether that be you find an owner that timing to buy so happens to match with their timing to sell, you're really going to run into such a small pool of companies that doing all that initial is going to slow you down. So you're, you're a bit better off thinking about this in a serendipitous manner. We'll come in with a few um, restrictions, but I don't want to get too picky when I don't even know what the market looks like right now. I put that all together and said, okay, so I have enough to go off of here. Let me start thinking about where I'm going to go location wise. Well, I'm based in California. I'm from New York City. So any of those locations are definitely exciting, but I also didn't want to concentrate on other hubs that have aerospace, which is, you know, what I'm more biased towards. And for that reason, I added in Texas, um, Arizona, Colorado. Florida. And I said, those are going to be my initial strike regions. And the other thing I did, which, you know, searchers don't necessarily need to do was I wanted to at least try to be near some major city within 30 or 40 miles. So I made that as a potential, you know, nice to have, but really at the end of the day, I'm open to, to deals all across the country. So having all that in mind, I, I still knew that call it like it is. I'm an engineer with some sales experience. You know, I'm not a deal guy. I, I made sure that either, you know, when I'm thinking about whether we're going to go funded or self-funded, I had to think about what was going to happen. So when you think about funded, you, you get a have investors that are um, essentially saying that they will invest in your deal if a deal does come up. So you do have that investor pool sort of ready from day one, but you also do get really strong advisors. Um, and that's really, really important. There's, you have to, I always joke, it's like you, you're only kind of smart enough to know what you don't know. I knew that there was a lot that I needed to fill in and, and to have people that would help me through. So when I looked at this, I said that if I go self-funded, which fortunately I was in some position to do so, that at least I'll be able to have flexibility, the deal sizes and so on. And then from there, I decided that the, the smart thing to do would at least be to put together some people that understood what they were doing and could help guide me through this. So forming that, I, I started to think about what those people would look like and decided that I would need someone with some level of financial or investment banking experience, someone with some auditor accounting experience, and then also someone with some legal experience. And 
I put together an initial team just reaching out on LinkedIn and having conversations with three people I'm, I'm really happy about that uh, have been really helpful in, in guiding this all through. So, you know, pretty much took it from there. And uh, I guess the last thing to, to touch on would be we went self-funded. So we wanted to make sure that we were at least in a position where we can try to take advantage of an SBA note. So when I was determining the deal size that we'd be going after, well, I said, well, an SBA note will go to five. Say we can stack some equity on there, some more loans. We'll probably be looking somewhere like a seven, um, eight or nine purchase price and max. And um, that tends to fall within a one to three million EBITDA range. So I set that as my initial target and, and that's what we've been looking for. Can you elaborate more and you alluded to it a little bit, but can you elaborate more on some of the ways you spent your time preparing for a search that maybe you would have done a little bit differently with hindsight? Yeah, that's that's a, that's a really good question. So I have the engineering mindset just because of my college education. And for that reason, I'm biased towards certain ways of thinking. Um, some are good. Some are definitely bad. Overthinking is probably the, the thing that I've done too much in the early stages of the search. I think, you know, I, as I highlighted, you want to pick it off. Don't be so rigid on exactly the type of deal. Just decide on a domain that you realistically think that you'd be happy in and that you think you can convince someone that you actually have success there. You don't need to read everything out there in the world. Like I've had search funders reach out and say, oh, how am I going to get this funded? How am I going to do this? How am I going to do that? Well, the, the challenge is you don't always know, right? A lot of it's going to come down to you finding a really good deal. And, and in my experience, there's a lot of people out there ready to fund good deals. And in fact, you'd be doing them a service by coming to them with something really interesting and on good terms. So I, I think you have to make sure you're not worrying about those things and instead just read just a few things, focus on a few high level resources. I think going on searchfunder.com also really helps because you, you get this feeling of a community and you're actually exposed to how helpful people are on there. It's, it's pretty surprising. It's one of the few things I've seen where you can come in and, and post something and immediately people offer their opinion and there's lists of you know, investors and lenders and so on. And it, it's really, it, it, the more you see it as this kind of somewhat structured thing, the, the, the more helpful it is. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a process through it, right? You know, starting out about your initial kind of thesis is the one thing that you kind of do, you think about. And once you get through that, everything kind of moves, right? You, you, you know, there's only a fixed amount of companies that operate in uh, your certain parameters, right? You, once you call them all and talk to them all, well, if there's no one interested, then you have to try something else, right? That's It's important for you to understand that, right? There's, there's only so much you can do in certain domains. Once you, you kind of understand that thinking, I think it's you know really important to understand who are the stakeholders in this whole thing that you're doing, right? So you have the, you know, you have the business brokers, you have people who are going to be bringing deal flow to you. You have the the lenders, right? So the lenders, um, financial arms, equity investors, and so on, who you're going to talk to after you find these deals, and you want to also at least have some conversations with the professional services side, the accountants and the lawyers. They're going to be very important to helping you guide this and. Once you, you break that down, I think it's really important to understand, well, what do you need to do first, right? In, in my case, I, I spent the initial part of the search after putting together the advisors, focusing on the professional services. And um, I think I spent about two, three weeks on it. So not that much time, but really wanted to make sure that I had a, a good pipeline of people that I trusted and you know could help this through once we did find an, an interesting opportunity. So I think that's really important. You know, I still, looking back at it, would do that. I probably wouldn't do it all in one kind of two, three week shot. I'd probably spread that out a bit more, but I definitely would try to at least start those conversations a bit earlier because that's something you just might want to get out of the way. 
The other thing that's really important is you want to get your name and your, and your search fund's name known to brokers as soon as you possibly can. I'd actually always recommend calling them rather than sending an email or applying to the website. You know, just give them a call, introduce yourself, let them know who you are, let them know what you look for. Just be, be friendly with them because, you know, it's really important to, to have people like that thinking of you as least in their, you know, top 10 companies that they think of once a, a deal comes to them. So, you know, really establishing yourself on, on general brokers, you know, Sunbelts, Transworlds of the world, but also going to some of those more boutique ones, Generational Equity, EBB, you know, putting yourself on Axial is really helpful. And just understanding that once you kind of lay that initial structural groundwork, then you can pick off the search from there. Yeah. And earlier in our call, you talked about the various phases of your search. Would you be able to elaborate and go into detail on each phase and how, you, how you've seen the search process go? I guess if we're timelining it here, there was that initial find the, find the idea and the, the, what we're pursuing, then go for advisors and then go for the professional services and then to go for the brokers. It was about in that order, looking back at it. I probably would do it the same aside from the accounting and lawyer side, spread that out through the whole phase, but have that be roughly the same. At that point, you definitely, once you've just told brokers what you're looking for and so on, you want to start thinking about how you're going to source deals on your own. This one, there's there's a few ways of doing it, but the way I did it was I downloaded a list of um, NASIS codes. So, you know, just designated codes um, based on the types of companies and the types of industries for people who don't know, you can easily find that it's spelled N-A-I-C-S. Once you identify NASIS codes that you're interested in, for me, I was interested in manufacturing, so I just went down that list, looked at anything that I thought would be intriguing. I found it also important to not be so picky. So for example, if they have screw manufacturing and I wasn't interested in screws, that might not be a basis to eliminate them because they might be making screws for something that I am interested in, such as aerospace. So I think being a little bit open-minded on that, putting together that initial list, then what you can do is get a membership to Dun & Bradstreet. I found it you know, really helpful and you can actually import the whole list of those NASIS codes in there. For me, what I did, and, and you don't have to do this, so I downloaded a full list of everything in the country first that had that fit. But then I also went in and Googled online zip code from generator. And I put in a zip code, say, for example, Los Angeles center of town. And then I just told them, give me every zip code 30 miles away. And they would give you a list. You then take that list. You can actually just import it as a CSV. Uh, it's students that done in brass tricks and it'll give you um, all the companies. And then you can download that list and you basically have your initial goals. So once you have all that and all these pieces are starting to move together, it's really important that you establish a, a CRM system or some way of tracking everything. And looking back on it, I, I spent way too much time thinking an Excel sheet would be a good solution for this, but it, it got out of hand so quickly. So I made sure to go and find a good CRM. I come from a sales background. So, you know, doing this wasn't too out of the ordinary for me. You know, I started initially on Zendesk, which is what I was just used to based on my prior professional experiences, but I actually found something called SalesMate, salesmate.io. I highly recommend that it. it's, it's, um, much cheaper and it offers all the services and you can actually make multiple pipelines, business brokers, bankers, you know, private equities, mezzanine, deal hunt and, and so on, all broken down on there. And I just thought about a good organizational system for all of this. You know, they, I made deals, as they call it, in SalesMate for all of it. Imported the brokers, you know, the, any of the private equity funds I talked to, I just put them all in there, make sure I have a log of my conversations and just keep things organized. And when I'd say I got that NASIS list, I just went through it and did sort of a qualitative check, if you will. Just looked at the business's webpage, said, okay, you know, I'm, I'm interested, highlighted all of them out. 
once I got to the point of, you know, businesses I'm actually interested in, I would, you know, just double check that none of them were owned by any larger conglomerates. Um, this is really frequent in aerospace. There's a lot of M&A to start with. So I ended up eliminating a bunch of them and came with a list of businesses I was interested in. I, I think if, if I'm remembering my numbers correctly, once I uh, went within 30 or 40 miles of, uh, aside, outside of cities that I was looking at, came down to something like 2,000 or so businesses to start with. And then that list got narrowed down to like 400 after all the qualitative reviews and all that, then about to probably about low 300s after I removed the ones that are already owned by someone else. And then what I would do to save time, and maybe if someone has an intern, they can look at doing this, but I just went on Upwork, found people on there that will work for a lower hourly rate in another country and just told them, hey, I need you to you know find out who the owner is. Frequently, these Dun & Bradstreet services will have that on there. So you can put it in there, find out who the owner is, and figure out all the certain parameters. I looked a lot at the years of when they were founded, made an assumption that if something was founded a while ago, so basically within a realistic timeline of one owner owning it, say something like 50 years back, the owner might be in his 70s. So I, I had that in there, sorted that list down, had them find the owners, had them find the owner's emails and contact information, put that into my CRM made sure I understood, did this owner just take over? Maybe it's the son, maybe it's this, maybe it's that. And really tried to understand before I made calls and just went on and started cold calling companies and seeing who's interested in selling. And they're not just being polite about it and saying, I'm, I'm here. If you are great, contact me in the future. If not, no problem. So, you know, that that's about where things were. And, you know, we have the business broker sending us listings now. And then we also have the proprietary search going as well. Once you have the list of owners and you're at the stage where you need to start making calls, how do you tell your story to the owner who's never talked to you before? And how do you get them to at least trust that you're you're interested in their business and you're not scamming them or something like that? How do you get tr- that trust with an owner and then tell your story? I, I think the, the first thing that you got to understand, and this took me a bunch of calls to, and meetings to really understand this, and I kind of thought about it, but I didn't really get it was that a lot of these owners are wary. They're not sure who you are. First of all, you're most likely a kid to them, right? If you're like 30 and they're in 70, you're probably a kid in their eyes, maybe the age of their children. So they're going to have that sort of thinking when they see you anyway, right? So you have to be aware that they might be looking down on you, not in a necessarily bad way, but you're really trying to convince them that A, you're legitimate, right? Because what if you're a competitor calling to, to understand their financial situation and so on? And that sounds crazy, but I have had owners that legitimately thought I was with a, with a competitor you know, show them everything else. And you, you want to make sure you're thinking about this when, when you're making these calls. So I guess if you're going to call in, right, you, you're going to 99% of the time get a secretary, try to see if the owner's information is online, but try to call, don't email. A lot of people email first. I definitely would recommend calling. Some of these guys are so old, they don't even know how to use email. But, um, you know, you call in. And just ask to speak to the owner or tell them you're a former or whatever looking to talk to the owner. And assuming they let you through to the owner, you talk to them. And you want to have some pitch ready. You don't want to just say, oh, uh, uh, and just start stuttering and kind of having a weird conversation. You want to make sure you have some sort of pitch ready. And you just want to ask them, you know, have you ever thought about a transition or a sale, right? They don't have, at least in my experience, this immediate thought, and most likely they're not going to be someone that you're going to be able to work with today. You know, maybe in the future something happens, maybe they're getting more motivated for some reason, but really from what I found, unless they're immediately from, yeah, you know what, I was actually about to list it or, or some, some answer like that that shows that it's similar to like a, an off-market deal. If, um, that's usually a really good sign. So 
when, you, when you're calling in, you want to try to draw out those answers. And you also want to try to find any similarities that you have with the owner beforehand. So if you have a similar educational background or you came, you grew up in a similar region or whatever the case is, you want to try to almost sneak that in into the first part of your pitch, just so they understand, you know, this is a person who's calling them that potentially reminds them of a younger version of themselves, right? And that's really, you know, at least from the conversations I've had with people who invest in search funders and so on, that's one of the big edges, you know, we have, right? We're not coming off as this huge private equity fund or instead of coming off as someone who's very relatable and they can trust is actually going to run the business properly. That, that's what you want to keep aware of, right? The, the real things you can offer some one of these, especially, you know, if you're a self-funded searcher, you, you're not going to be able to move as quickly as an all-cash buyer and, and so on. So you really want to make sure that there's some really strong trust building between you two. And that a lot of that comes to trying to bond on, on things that you've really done before. So I'd make sure I try to sneak that in and very, you know, quickly to the conversation. And the thing that's also important as well is you don't want to be too aggressive on, on these calls. You want to build trust as you go. So, you know, you're having the initial call. You can't assume that the seller is just, yeah, sitting around doing nothing all day and uh, they're ready to talk to you for 15 minutes about your experience. And if they're selling, you have to treat that first call as just like a, hey, I'm interesting for these reasons. I remind you of yourself, whatever it is. Can we find a time to talk later next week? And if they sounded interesting and they find time to talk to you next week, most likely you'll be able to talk a, a bit further and understand, you know, their motivations. And in those calls, I, I, I try to not spend most of it having a, a sort of business conversation more of just tell me about yourself. Why'd you get into this? And I found that a lot of sellers, like no one ever asked them these questions, right? Very rarely do people actually care anything about them. They're behind the scenes and so on. So just try to understand their motivations as best you can. And once you do do that, the, you know, after that conversation, then you might want to take it to an NDA and just tell them, say, Hey, I can give you a high level idea of what I can do here. Do understand that I'm at the mercy of my funding sources. And at the end of the day, I, I'm just going to tell you what I can do for you and what I can offer you. I can't offer you an instant close. I, I can't offer you some of these benefits that a private equity might firm might be able to do paying very high multiples or a competitor might just pay more just to get rid of a, um, one of the part of the competition. So. Just be upfront about them. Let them know what you can do and can't do and just tell them, get me some high level financials and we can talk further and you get an NDA in place. It shows that they're somewhat serious. I've, I've usually seen most of the not serious ones fall apart right there and then they just won't execute an NDA. But if they're starting to send financials and they're been actively having selling conversations, I think that's a, a pretty good sign to, to kind of pursue further. A lot of searchers involve in direct outreach, they involve email pretty substantially. So why do you start with the phone call and not email direct or email on that first contact? Yeah, well, I tried that. Um, the thing that I got like feedback wise, especially once sellers were more honest with me is that especially if it's a, a decent sized business and you know they have a decent online presence, they get a lot of brokers and, and private equity funds calling them every day and, and kind of taking their attention. Uh, you, you can push that route and potentially might lead to success, but really, you know, you're, you're fighting kind of through the same door with all these brokers and all that. And when these secretaries usually not connect you with the owners, it's usually because they think you're a broker or something like that. You, you want to try to find a more creative way of, of getting to that owner and, that's why I just go for the call. And, I, and there's also been a lot of times where I've sent emails and never heard back. But then once I've actually had a conversation with them on the phone later, they respond to that same email chain. So, that, you know, they, they did get it or they went to the junk or whatever. But it's just been more effective for me. And you can have a quick conversation. And you also get that benefit of gauging tone. Uh, I, I've noticed that a lot of sellers, they're just 
want to know what their business is worth, right? You know, and then when the next guy comes along, they're going to say, oh, someone offered me this much last year. Why are you offering me so little or whatever the case is? So I've just found that in my experience, the better draw out the more serious sellers and get directly to the source instead of taking this long route to get them to answer. In terms of gaining that trust with owners, what are some things that as a searcher you should avoid doing that make you look bad? Or what are some bad practices that you want to avoid and then maybe what are some like additional things you can do that make owners trust you more or are perhaps make their lives just a little bit easier i guess to answer that question i think it's very important to be upfront about what you can offer get your numbers and your idea out of front and for the first thing i like to do is i like to just explain to them how did i even get to this what is a search fund and so on it's really good to be able to reference some of the top business schools that endorse this model in in, in your some of your initial pitch it gets them to say okay this isn't just some crazy 20 30 something year old just calling me out of the blue trying to buy my operation thinking it's going to be fine they want to know that there's some adult supervision and um, the other thing they want to know is that there's some financial backing behind you. You want to at least, especially if you're self-funded, have some conversations throughout your initial stages just to make sure there are people out there who would vouch for you if you found a good deal. And that could be as simple as they'll write you a letter of financial support saying, hey, if you do go through this deal, we can um, we can back you to whatever. And the sellers just want to know. They, they want to know that if they're going to invest numerous months with you, talking through these details and potentially paying legal fees and, and uh, accounting fees and so on, that you're not going to be in a situation where you just can't close. You want to be super upfront about how you're doing this, how you're getting the funding. It's it's very helpful if you have bankers that you're already talking to that you can reference say, hey, bank XYZ and I have a you know decent relationship. They're you know ready to look at this whenever this is ready to go. And just being upfront, right? Because they're not stupid, right? They they know you're you're a young person and you most likely don't have millions of dollars laying around. And if you're telling them that you're not a private equity fund, well, then how else are you funding this, right? So they just want to know that the basic things that a business broker would want to draw out from you, you want to address those objections even before the seller asks you about them. So if you know, for example, a business broker is going to want financial proof and all this, it's something you should just try to draw out. If, if you think about a seller goes through a business broker, there's that person there that's kind of guiding them that they trust that, that helps make sense of things and address their objections, potentially even before they have objections. And because you're just calling a seller out of the blue and maybe they haven't even paid for a business broker yet, you have to almost act like a business broker. So you have to address these objections yourself and then also do a little bit of handholding as well in terms of listen, this isn't really a, you're not really against it's me versus you kind of situation, which frequently they, they kind of feel when you meet them, but but it's more of me, me and you figuring out how we can make this happen, assuming that there's no lies in any of the information you've told me, right? And as long as you're upfront about things and you're sharing things, I can make sure that I can build the strongest financial case to investors and therefore get you the highest payout for your business for what it's worth. So as long as you're, you're doing things like that and, and speaking honestly like that, I think you're you're in a good spot to build trust over time. Even getting to the LOI stage is difficult, but closing an LOI can just fall apart at any time. So if you get into an LOI with one business, how do you think about potentially hedging your bets, if you will, and getting into an LOI with with a second business? And do you think about balancing multiple or do you try to stay focused on just one business at a time? I think um, I can get pretty focused, just my my personality. But the thing that to note is like, even if you do, in this case, get really focused on one business, I mean, there isn't this whole point where, you know, you're just fully working on that, right? You're 
waiting for the seller to send you things. They're still running a business, so it's not just going to be this instantaneous thing unless they have some emergency. There's going to be a bunch of dead time. I think it's really important to not um, just stop your search whenever you find something interesting. You're always It's always better to come from a position of power, and you frequently won't feel that you're coming from a position of power if you don't have a lot of options. If you have a lot of options, you're not so worried if one of them fall off. So I think it's really important to just keep your conversations going, making sure you still have things going on before you close that deal. And yeah, who knows, right? That could fall apart right at the signing table on the last day for whatever reason. And you would have been basically spending months doing nothing. So uh, you think of it a lot like a job offer, right? And until you fully sign the job offer that you like, you're most likely going to still attend interviews. Really keep that in mind. And you know, I, I always think about this kind of searching as you're, you're effectively trying to interview for the job of CEO of that company, right? And if you think of it that way, you know, you're not going to just focus on one. You're going to make sure you have other options lined up. So I always recommend just keep looking, keeps the search flow going. And worst case, you just end up with more options that you can either bolt on to that existing acquisition in the future or just buy a second business. So coming from engineering background, that's a it gives you a unique perspective on searching. So how do you think about search differently from folks without the engineering background and then other prospective searchers who have engineering backgrounds who come to you for advice? What sorts of things do you tell them? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. So I, I've had a few searchers reach out and they've noticed that I have an engineering background. And I think, the, you know, a lot of these traditional search fund, institutional investors, if you will, that they, they won't fund these manufacturing acquisitions, at least for the hunt phase. Right. So it's really important to understand that, you know, if you're going to be doing it and you're really set on utilizing your engineering to go buy something in manufacturing, you just want to be aware of that thinking of the financial perspective. So I would make sure that's kind of squared away first. So making sure that you're really, you're basically ready to fund um, any manufacturing searches on your own. Um, if you're an engineer just trying to get something else, I think it's really important to say, okay, well, I'm not going to overthink too much. It's very hard to say. The more engineering degrees you have, master's, PhD, and so on, I found this to be harder and harder. But really, you just got to trust that a lot of these details will, will fall in place or you'll get to that path. And you do have some similarities that you do with like a startup. You know, you will probably pivot. You know, today you might focus on aerospace. Tomorrow you might be interested in dental implant centers, right? In a lot of ways, they're both doing some type of manufacturing, but it's just different domains, right? You know, you, you, you want to think about that. So as, you, as you're going through, don't sit there and sweat all the details. Have a sort of a general strategy. Focus more on convincing investors what your thinking is, right? So if you're kind of like, like I explained with the aerospace components and the equipment and so on, you want to think about it. So I'm looking for a business that just has these characteristics. And if the industry changes, then that's fine. But I want to make sure that I at least try to hit some of these and so on. And don't overthink, you know, who's going to fund this after, what industry analysis should I be doing? Don't do any of that. Just come up with something you actually wouldn't be miserable being a part of every day. And then come up with something that you can also realistically convince someone else of. And then from there, go after just those NASIS codes. Use NASIS codes as kind of something that your engineering brain will understand really, really well in the sense that there's only a fixed amount of options to pick from. It's like if you're designing a park for an airplane, right? There's only so many suppliers that will supply you this shaft or whatever the case is. So you just do your kind of analysis on that and go based on that. But just you have to know, you know, you eventually will run out of options and that will force you to make a new choice. So you don't need to be too worried about that. Focus more on using your engineering to be organized, to structure the search. 
But then after that, you're really putting on a sales hat. And then once you do find a business, you're, you're more putting on that operations hat. So just be really aware of this. Don't, don't really overthink things and, and just try to only focus on the initial steps as I kind of outlined in that initial process and then just kind of let the rest fall in place. Back to telling the story to the owner. How do you use your engineering background as a strength? I imagine also a lot of the owners are probably engineers themselves and it created this component that you know became multiple components and a business around it. So how do you use your engineering as a strength, but also demonstrate enough business awareness to be a fit owner for that business? In manufacturing, you kind of have a few people, right? So you have someone who was more on the machinist side, got really good at producing a certain type of component and just kept doing it. And you have that person that was engineering by background and never practiced too much engineering and more was on like the management side and the business side of things. And then you have that one that actually was a practicing engineer. I've seen more of the first two in my search and think about that. I say, well, machinists, like what, what, what is their nature usually? Usually they're very calm and, and they think twice before doing things. And it's kind of like, you know, they, they measure twice and cut once and they really apply that to a lot of the things they do. So they're super careful. So I, I try to make sure that, um, you know, I'm, I'm helping them not be so cautious around me. And then if it's on the engineering side, I, I kind of come with this, you know, assumption that they're going to be a little bit more organized. You want to convince the seller that you have like really similar values. For me, one big thing is uh, I'm, I'm a kind of a neat freak with things. So part of my engineering background as well, I like think super organized, you know, done properly, placed properly, furniture wise, you know, clean stuff and so on. So I, I really relate well to those sellers that, I come in and, you know, they, they have a really nice shop, well organized, well thought through. And I kind of compliment that on that. And you compliment the business owner by complimenting their business. So I really have more genuine compliments in that case, because that is something I, I truly value myself. The other thing I found, so I, I really like cars and I've worked on, you know, a few car projects, built cars from scratch before. So I, I try to, you know, if I notice that they're like a mechanical engineer like myself, I, I'm going to bet that they have some interest in cars. Um, usually when I'll come into their office, they'll have something hanging somewhere and I will spend a good amount of time talking on those things and just observing it and talking specs and just that, that, that works really well. You're just using things like that to your strength. You got to think about like what a person with that sort of education would really value and be interested in and, and try to, you know, see if you can find the uh, relations on, on those terms. What skills are engineers perhaps missing frequently that are really important during a search to build? I think like in my case, I'm, I'm pretty different than some engineers because I've at least done some sales and it was really hard for me at first when I was doing some of my initial sales and I was really forcing myself out of my own personality. And then that's something that I found a lot of engineers just, they don't want to do cold calls. They don't want to do any of that. I, I think you need to come into this expecting that you're most likely going to need to do probably at least 500 to a thousand cold calls. Just for us to find one business that relatively seemed interesting, that was 300 cold calls, right? So you just got to be ready for that. And, and there's really nothing you can do aside from just get reps in. And, you know, engineers tend to not have those good cold call skills. So what I'd recommend if you're doing that is to try to start out with businesses you don't care so much about. You're going to sound terrible, most likely, but try to at least create a script for yourself and memorize it. So at least you're not really focusing your mental energy on the call on how am I sounding and you're, you're just you know, making sure that you're just focusing on, you know, what the script is. So you're not, you know, you have a script memorized and you're not kind of starting from scratch on these calls. So at least try to do that. And then the thing that these owners want is they just want confidence in that this person is going to be able to close this, right? 
If you coming off them as someone who's not confident, who's giving them any sign that either A, you won't be able to close this, or even worse, you might buy their business and you might not be able to even speak to their staff and you have no leadership skills in that sense, I think that's going to really alarm them. Maybe you'll make a deal, but I think you really need to kind of flush out those skills so that you don't fail along the way. What characteristics do you look for in manufacturing companies? We're really interested in understanding what the end market is, right? You could be making a screw, right? But there's screws that go into mining equipment, and then there's screws that go into oil equipment, and there's screws that go into defense equipment, you know, and they're all a different type of screw, right? So the thing thing that you should first do, and I focused in, in my case, when you have people that are advisors and then sort of a deal team to come help review the quantitative perspective is to make sure I really flushed out the qualitative first. So what I what I look for first is say, okay, well, they're producing this product. Let's first, A, make sure that they don't have any significant customer concentration. So, you know, as a first time owner of one of these businesses, you're, you're going to be in a very risky position, essentially, because you're loading your business potentially with some debt. You want to make sure that you kind of don't have this situation where if you come in from day one and you just piss off one customer and that customer is 30% of revenues, then you won't be able to pay your loans. And most likely as you go through, there's like checks and balances in these systems and and that bankers most likely wouldn't even fund a deal like that knowing your experience. So I want to really make sure that I understand A, where their product sits in the supply chain and B, that they don't have that much customer concentration. Once I've understood those two and I'm kind of happy with that, knowing that, you know, their product is sitting on a platform that's going to be going on for many more years and then that they don't have any significant concentration issues, then I'll start to look into say, okay, well, why do customers keep reordering this part in general? And then why do customers keep reordering from them, right? They can go anywhere, right? So when I look at, you know, why do they order this part in general? I want to try to understand, is there some reusability to this. Maybe these parts are a one-time use. Maybe it's say it's like a medical device that gets implanted and then it's done and then they have to keep buying more. Is it something that can be refurbished or refinished and therefore customers sometimes opt to do that instead of buying something new from them? So just understanding that end of it and then also trying to understand the part of why did they go to them, right? What What is their sort of secret sauce, right? Frequently, these owners will say, you know, I don't know, or we have really good on time delivery, good relationships or whatever, but you want to be really clear on this. Um, I, I've heard some examples where they people have bought businesses and they found out that the top customers are buying from them because part of the money is paying for some presents or something to the, the, the customers and so on. And that might not be something you might be able to sustain going forward. So you just want to be really aware of that and, and why they're buying from them. And you want the reasons to be something like there's a consolidation in the amount of people who can supply these parts. They so happen to meet the cut. So they're one of the few that are allowed. Uh, or there's, you know, they're operating on some really expensive equipment that either A, has a long, long lead time or is so expensive that most people wouldn't even buy bother buying it to start something like this from scratch. And just really just understanding those kind of macro trends and making sure that the the whole thing makes sense and you have a full grasp on why this is a good operation from the qualitative. And then you can shift over and try to really dig into the quantitative and, and make sure that all looks good. What class would you teach in college if you could teach about anything you wanted? At uh, NYU Stern, they had this class called Real Estate Entrepreneurship. Um, it was actually really interesting. It, it probably mimicked a lot of the principles you do in like a private equity fund or anything like that. Taught by a professor who was an active developer. And the project there that I, I really thought was really cool was that the professor would have the students m- make groups. And 
they would have a semester long project where they had to identify a real estate asset that they wanted to invest in and then perform certain improvements and then increase the rents and so on. And had to kind of go through this whole process, creating financial statements, reformas and so on. And at the end of the year, you would present it to him and he would offer his thoughts on it. Right. And I just thought that was really interesting. Right. Because that's in a lot of ways similar to some of the stuff, you know, search funders end up doing. Right. They find deals and they figure out what they're going to do and they present it to investors and then they're going to give you their thoughts based on their experience and so on. So I, I think definitely, you know, the, the takeaways from a class like that, I think sending students out into an environment where they get to go and find things that actually exist and figure out how they can add value to them and bundle it in a way that's understandable by investors and different finance committees and, and present that. And I, I think something like that would be a very interesting class to, to end up having in, in a lot of universities. Nice. Yeah, that'd be a lot of fun. What's a belief you used to hold fairly strongly that you've since changed your mind on? When it comes to like search funds, I think the, the big thing was like a lot of things that I, I thought were going to be so smooth uh, weren't. It's, you know, I think you find that out a lot. There's some parts of the startup world where I felt that way. You know, you spend half the time in the startups running around like a chicken with your head cut off. And it's just a bit crazy there. So I thought there would be a lot more, there'll be a lot more structure here, but it's still, there's some of that, some of the stuff doesn't still go the way you normally want it to. So I think, you know, coming into search funds, you just want to have an open mind. And, you know, I also thought at some point that sellers would be really honest about things that they're potentially hiding and, you know, some of their financials would be cleaner and didn't find it that way. And also understanding what businesses of different sizes look like has been really interesting. What have been some of your observations on different manufacturing companies at various sizes? The ones that have, let's say, a few locations they actually manufacture in, each of those locations, especially when you have the revenue fixed, let's say like the 10, they're maybe not as clean, maybe as smaller shops, maybe in their you know, cheaper locations. Um, I've noticed a lot of them, like the floors are really dirty and just, you know, it's not very, not very clean operation. Um, but, you know, some of the other ones where maybe they have like one manufacturing facility and everything's in-house, you know, the CEO works there, all the, the head staff is there and so on, they tend to be a bit cleaner, right, and a bit more organized. I've always found it, you know, really interesting. I think you can tell a lot about the attitude and the pride the employees give to the organization by how they keep their workplaces clean and, and how they just keep the general environment. Uh, so that's just been really interesting to see when you get to tour manufacturing operations of all different shapes and sizes. What's the best business you've come across? Business that I learned about, I don't remember how many years ago, um, they're actually called Big Ass Fans. They literally make big ass fans and their, their logo is a donkey, right? Which is pretty funny. It's really interesting because the uh, the founder, he learned about the concept before they were called like high uh, volume, low speed fans. It was this concept that just kind of like never took off and the founder found out about this and went with a similar design to it and then ended up growing this huge company out of it, making a few hundred million dollars of a sale um, just a few years back. So I just always appreciate it. It has like that, you know, the Apple Tesla-esque feeling, except the fly to really big fans. And I, I just think that's interesting. It was a very cool way of taking something that was just a simple, boring fan invented by machinists and, and adding, you know, all this flair to it. Thank you very much for sharing your time. It's good to hear from a searcher who's in the, the middle of all that roller coaster of a process. So thank you for sharing your time with us today. It was awesome. I appreciate you having me and always happy to help. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation today. If you liked today's episode, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Hood & Strong, and Traction Capital Partners for helping support the podcast. For show notes and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgman.com slash podcast.